This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. Back in 2020, Professor Ken Smith, um, head of the Department of Medicine at University of Cambridge, was at the forefront of research in the university's Jeffrey Chia Biomedical Centre when the pandemic broke out. And of course, as you know, um, what happened next happened to you know every country around the world. But uh, in my conversation with Professor Ken today, I hope to get a glimpse of how research groups in the Jeffrey Chia Biomedical Centre pivoted very quickly to focus on COVID-19 and how their research directed the university's pandemic response and um, I believe played a central role in um, the UK's national response as well. And uh, I also want to ask Professor Ken the difficult question of how we should prepare for the next pandemic, what might that look like and how genomic surveillance will be central to the response. Thanks for joining me all the way from the UK, uh, from Cambridge. Professor Ken, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me on your show. So you direct the Cambridge Institute for Therapeutic Immunology and Infectious Disease, uh, that very long name. Uh, perhaps you could uh, explain to us what exactly does this institute do um, and sort of where does it sit within the Jeffrey Chia Biomedical Centre in the University of Cambridge? So the uh, the long name we call CITID for short, um, it comprises the top half of the Jeffrey Chia Biomedical Centre, roughly, uh, which is at the heart of the Cambridge Biomedical Campus, which is the largest biomedical ca- campus in Europe. Um, so the Jeffrey Chia Biomedical Centre opened in late 2019, and we moved in in October, November. So we really just moved in when the pandemic struck, when word came uh, that, that this virus had been identified and was starting to spread. So we weren't very organized at that point. The good thing was we'd established the institute very much focused on what we thought would be the immunological and infectious diseases problems of the future. So we had a focus on pandemic preparedness, on antimicrobial resistance, on the impacts of climate change on immunity and infection, as well as on immune-mediated disease, which many of us had worked on for a long time. So we had a very large high security microbiology laboratory uh, and we had essentially all the kit in place ready to go for this sort of um, pandemic. So what we did was when the uh, it became clear that the disease was spreading, we had a number of meetings to work out how we could best dr- align our research with, with what was going on. Uh, and then, of course, the first lockdown started. And that meant that the university shut all of its laboratory and other facilities across the, the campus. Uh, And in order to be allowed to stay open, uh, what we did was to make sure that every group in the Institute pivoted to work very in a very focused way on COVID-19. And so we started that in February, March of 2020. And, uh, and that's what, uh, and we continued really throughout the pandemic Mm. uh, as the only research Institute open on, on the campus. So I'll ask you in a bit, you know, what kind of research um, the Institute worked on uh, to feed towards the university's response and as well as to support the UK's national response. But, you know, some might think, wow, it sounds like you had a crystal ball almost in setting up uh, this Institute uh, just in time to respond to COVID-19. But also at the same time, actually, you know, many uh, public health bodies had been already warning the world about 
an infectious disease pandemic, we should have been better prepared for it uh, after SARS, after MERS and so on, right? What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, so I agree. You know, if we had had a crystal ball, we would have opened at least a year earlier and been much more up to up to speed when, when the pandemic came. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think you're right. I think that while people have been talking about pandemics and the risk of pandemics and there'd been these small ones like the SARS-CoV-1 and so on, I think we'd had a sort of collective memory loss about you know, the uh, 1918 flu pandemic, for example. You know, We have had major international pandemics with death rates higher than COVID-19 only a generation or two ago, and we seem to have forgotten a lot about those experiences. And I think that led to a certain complacency. So despite the fact that there were people very much working on this and warning everybody, no one was really listening because they'd forgotten. And I think that that's one of the problems. And then we we had to reinvent a few wheels uh, that perhaps we had learned 100 years ago, but had, had slipped our minds in the intervening century. And we hope that won't happen again um, after COVID, right? Well, we, I think we should expect that it will happen. Oh, the memory loss. The memory again. loss, yes. Yes. Mm. yes, pandemics will happen again. And uh, it's our job to try and put structures in place that will survive political turmoil and upheaval and all the other things that go on from time to time uh, so we can respond better next time. So um, talk to me about what CITID did uh, in responding and, and in pivoting towards COVID-19 research. Well, well the first thing we realised was that any work we did couldn't be done uh, in a way that impeded in any way the health system. The health system was a breaking point in the UK as it was everywhere with uh, enormous stress and strain in dealing with patients and intensive care beds and ventilators and and the whole. Um, so we couldn't walk into the, into the NHS, into the hospital and say, please give us samples and spend time helping our research. So what we did first was to focus on research contributions that would actually directly benefit patients. And two of the early things we did was to introduce the first staff screening, uh, asymptomatic staff screening program in the UK, um, because it had become clear that the hospital was probably the major source of COVID transmission in the community during the first lockdown. Uh, And in part, that was because we we didn't know which of the staff were infected uh, in order to send them home. So we set that screening up. All of the testing was done in the Jeffrey Chia Biomedical Centre. We were testing staff as they came off shift every day. And we found that 3% of staff, asymptomatic staff, tested positive for COVID-19 and we could send them home. Uh, And over a matter of weeks, that contributed to uh, almost cessation of transmission within the hospital. So it was quite a a big impact. But at the same time, it got us into the clinics. It got us uh, engaged with the hospital in a very positive way. Uh, And so in parallel to that, we set up programs to study the early immune responses to COVID-19. We started to set up sequencing of the virus so that we could track the uh, track the pandemic in a in a more granular way, which perhaps we should come back to. Oh, we introduced the first point of care testing for SARS-CoV-2 in the country. Uh, of course, when this all started, it, it was taking twenty four to forty eight hours to get a PCR test back on patients, and that meant that for two or a day or two, they were in a limbo unable to be treated properly, but also at risk of transmission. And so by introducing a test that uh, Elizabeth Lee and others put together very quickly, that gave us an immediate result, we could start to channel patients more effectively, make the hospital function more efficiently Mm. and reduce transmission. So we did a a lot of practical things early uh, that allowed us at the same time in parallel to be building up the more detailed scientific virological and immunological analyses that have followed. 
Mm. So a lot of it was um, actually very a uh, real-time impact, um, enabling um, the healthcare system to, to function more efficiently, uh, patients to be identified and referred and treated, right? Yes, with research labs running through the night, uh, we, we would the afternoon swabs, we would have results back by the morning. And that was aided by the fact that there were an enormous lot of volunteers willing to come in. It was a risky sort of time to come into the hospital campus and work, remembering that a lot of the university laboratories had shut down. And so a lot of those people wanted to help. So they came in and really bolstered us as a sort of army of volunteers from other scientific areas who came in to work on these issues. And you were right in the heart of that as well? Yeah. And a lot of us also were working clinically at the same time. So we we were linked into the wards in a very practical way. So let's talk a little bit about that sequencing that you've alluded to. Um, And I think this would lead us to, um, I read about the COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium. Um, Perhaps some background first, right? Um, What exactly do we mean uh, by the sequencing work that you're doing? Why is that important? So... um, Essentially, sequencing the whole virus, sequencing its its genome, uh, allows us to identify specific strains of the virus and allows us to do a number of different things to understand the pandemic in real time. So at a local level, understanding subtle differences between viral strains allows us to pinpoint localised outbreaks. So if six people have all got exactly the same substrain of virus, we could work out they all went to the same nightclub or... um, you know, had some common point of transmission. Um, On a more population-wide level, we can see when new strains enter the country, we can see how they spread, and we can quickly try and correlate the information about the viral strain with how transmissible they are, what the mortality of that strain is, uh, and the risks that it poses. So it allows both a granular local response, but it also enables a national response. Uh, So it's a critical part of, of monitoring a viral outbreak like this. Uh, so what what happened, and I, I must say that I, w- I was involved in this, as was the Jeffrey Chia Biomedical Centre, particularly in setting it up, but it was run as a national collaboration. Uh, uh, it was led by Sharon Peacock, who's a member of CITID, but also at the Sanger Institute, and the Sanger Institute did much of the sequencing. But but the very early sequencing was, was set up in the Jeffrey Chia Biomedical Centre and then grew very quickly beyond that to the Sanger and elsewhere. And, and actually a very early study done by uh, Ian Goodfell and Steve Baker here along with Sunway, correlated sequencing of virus from both Malaysia and, and the UK to make sure that we were both looking at the same things in a in a transferable transferable fashion. All right. Uh, so so that quickly grew uh, under Sharon's leadership. And within, uh, and, and I think the first sequences, you know, some hundreds of sequences almost by the end of March were already done. At 1.70% of the world's viral sequences had been generated by COG UK. So it was a, a the dominant international player early in understanding the pandemic at a genetic level. You know, in a very practical sense, um, what does this uh, genomic information enable um, healthcare systems or governments or, or healthcare providers to do better? So um, I suppose it enables understanding. So it, for example, if a new strain comes into a country, you can once it starts to spread, you can quickly work out what risks that poses. Is it more likely to spread? What do we have to do to public health measures if we're going to, or is it less likely to spread and we can keep the same public health measures in terms of mask wearing and, and other things? Secondly, what impact does it have clinically? Does it suddenly cause an increase in severe disease and should we redouble our efforts to prevent its spread or is it a bit like the last strain and 
or does it have some other subtle difference? So it allows us to to monitor and direct both public health and hospital-based responses to the new strain. Uh, and potentially, uh, not this hasn't quite happened yet, but it potentially allows us, as we see the strain coming, to do two other things. One is to understand how mutations in different bits of the virus impact on its ability to infect, and that, of course, involves a whole lot of lab work. But that understanding will eventually feed into things like vaccine design. Uh, and it, it also potentially allows us to start to design new vaccines as new strains come on board, as, of course, happens every year with influenza. When a new strain comes up, it's there's a surveillance system, it's identified, and then the next round of, of flu vaccines is generated. It's that sort of information on, on SARS-CoV-2 that could lead to a similar uh, ongoing response uh, and information about for vaccine programs. So, uh, for instance, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, I think, are uh, submitting for approvals for booster doses uh, that have been tweaked for the Omicron variant. So is it something like that? Exactly like that. So you identify the new variant and then you can start to to design the next phase of the, the vaccine response mm. to that. And that can exactly. only be done when you have that kind of um, uh, genomic sequencing uh, data, right? Um, yes, in theory, you could, of course, predict what strains might come because, you know, we, we know the viral genome and we might be able to predict what variants could cause different strains. So I suppose in theory, you could have a bank of, of vaccines waiting. But I think in practical terms, well, we don't do that um, because it, it's probably not, not efficient. We wait for the next strain to come and then design the, the vaccine. All right. I'm speaking to Professor Ken Smith, head of the Department of Medicine at University of Cambridge. And um, he also directs the Cambridge Institute for Therapeutic Immunology and Infectious Disease, um, which uh, was at the forefront uh, of a lot of COVID-19 based research uh, in Cambridge when the pandemic broke out. I am trying to understand more about uh, the Institute's work in um, genomic sequencing and trying to relate it um, later on when we come back from the break, I'll try to relate it to sort of, um, you know, how could Malaysia, for instance, um, build up our genomic uh, surveillance capacity uh, on a national scale as well? And, um, you know, look at some difficult questions, I think, about uh, what the next pandemic is going to look like and uh, the role of genomic surveillance in that. So stay tuned. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. I'm speaking to Professor Ken Smith, who is joining me uh, on Zoom all the way from Cambridge. He is the head of the department at the University of Cambridge. He also directs the Cambridge Institute for Therapeutic Im Immunology and Infectious Disease. And uh, we've been talking about the COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium, which was um, set up as an initiative um, by the CITID, by the Institute, um, early on in the pandemic, um, said to be the world's largest SARS-CoV-2 viral sequencing effort. Am I right, Professor Ken? Yes, the COG-UK um, program was initially the, the dominant sequencing effort in the world. So, um, I'm not where it sits in the rank right at the moment, because obviously everybody's ramped up their efforts over the last year and, and uh, 
So it's now much more common to see comprehensive sequencing approaches to this problem. Absolutely. And and um, it shouldn't be the effort of one country alone, should it, Professor? Uh, and we heard so much about how um, South Africa, and largely due to the mass scale of infections that they saw as well, and rapid uh, surveillance, they also um, were at the forefront of identifying some of the variants, Delta and Omicron, uh, that came out. I think you know, South Africa did enormously well at surveillance and at finding variants and at making that data publicly available so that internationally people could respond. I think they were a sort of a beacon, really, in, and demonstrated that this could be done even with relatively limited resources as long as you're organised and get on with it. And so that brings me to, you know, could Malaysia replicate something like this and what kind of capacity would we need um, for surveillance and for this kind of data sharing uh, on a countrywide scale? This is an area of public health, which is not my expertise and certainly not in Malaysia. But uh, but essentially what happened here was that the major government laboratories that were doing sequencing, uh, sorry, that were doing uh, SARS-CoV-2 assays, fed all of their samples into a central laboratory for sequencing. Uh, and you could imagine that if there's, if there's a national organised system for microbiological surveillance, you wouldn't have to, of course, sequence everything necessarily, particularly between pandemics. But uh, as long as there was a system for routinely using genomics to keep a, a watch, if you like, on what's being turned up in, in hospitals across the country uh, as people come in for testing, uh, that's the sort of surveillance that I think could be put in place without huge expense, uh, provided the organisational system is up to speed. And there's certainly um, efforts to try and define approaches that allow us to look not only at individual specific viruses, but to develop assays that allow uh, it to be easy to look across the range of viral pathogens, both both the new pathogens coming up, as well as to, to keep an eye on existing circulating pathogens. You know, when uh, you say names like Cambridge, uh, people always think it must involve cutting-edge technology. Is that necessarily the case? I think that uh, sequencing at scale is now something that, while it costs money, uh, is done in lots of places uh, and can be centralised, or in fact is often more efficiently centralised. And it's cutting-edge technology, and of course it's always getting more efficient and getting slightly cheaper as a result over the last you know decades. Um but it, it exists and happens in Malaysia. It's, it's, it's easy to do in many places. So uh, I think that that technology, while cutting edge, is now able, at least in major centres, to be, to be used. So I think developing a programme that allows baseline surveillance in the way I've just mentioned, but also is scalable quickly in the face of a pandemic is, is what uh, we need to do. And um, is there value in genomic surveillance even when the disease may no longer be, uh, even if we are not in the pandemic phase? And of course, there's a lot of, you know, it's debatable whether we are or not. Um, you know, the, the cases and deaths haven't gone anywhere. Uh, but is it something that needs to be sustained long after the height of the pandemic? I think that's going to differ between infections. Uh, some infections will largely go away and you'll need just surveillance to see if they come back. In something like SARS-CoV-2, which is continuing to circulate and which we know if it, for example, infects someone with a defective immune system, can persist for long periods, allowing mutations to accumulate. 
we need to be on watch for new variants coming up that might spread more quickly and might need a different response. So I think we do need a sort of level of baseline surveillance, uh, depending on the intensity of circulation and the likelihood of variants. And the, the, there was a, a new Hanipah virus identified in China uh, recently. And, and, you know, th- there will be news like this every now and then. And people are asking, what will the next pandemic be? Um, can you shed a little light on whether that particular Hanipah virus in China is something to be alarmed about? Or, um, or, or what should we be looking out for in terms of the next pandemic? So, so I... I'm not an expert in the new virus, though I've read that its rate of transmission, its transmission between humans doesn't suggest it's going to be the same sort of problem that SARS-CoV-2 is. Um, but I think the fact that it was identified and the fact that it's now being monitored is, is the point. So that you can you can assess its transmissibility between humans and you can assess the risk early, assess the risk that it poses. As you, as you say, viruses will pop up from time to time, many of them transmissions, particularly from from animal hosts into humans, uh, might be very be self-limiting uh, and not cause a major problem. And this is probably happening all the time. Surveillance will find that. Uh, and the, the point then is to watch it and make sure that it doesn't spread and make sure it's one of the ones that goes away or can be controlled locally. One, one of the big differences, of course, about pandemics now compared to a few hundred years ago is the, is the rate of spread. So, um, as someone in the university pointed out to me as the university was locking down, uh, this has happened before. This has been happening in the University of Cambridge for over 600 years. Um, bubonic plague has shut the university down on more than one occasion. And, uh, but the difference with bubonic plague was it didn't travel by aircraft. So you could map its slow spread across the continents. Uh, and what we're doing now is, is making that happen much more quickly in days rather than years, which is the great challenge. So will COG UK um, play its continue to play its role in looking at these new viruses that uh, will come up from time to time? So there's discussion about incorporating COG UK into the public health system to to so that the the knowledge that COG UK has developed, which has been, I must say, um, through Ewan Harrison and Sharon Peacock's work, has been disseminated widely as well. So they didn't just do the sequencing, they they, they spread the, the capacity internationally. Uh, that's going to be incorporated into the public health system so that it becomes part of routine surveillance in the future. Uh, and then there's research efforts here and at the Sanger Institute and at other places to, to explore what the, the next generation of surveillance should look like, uh, surveillance that extends beyond just SARS-CoV-2 and that can extend internationally, that's that's resilient enough to be scaled internationally. So that's that's the next challenge, I think, to make sure we're ready for next time. And speaking of being ready for next time, um, what lessons do you feel were learned during COVID-19 um, that would craft a good pandemic response for whatever comes next? Well, I think there were lots of lessons learned, uh, lots of mistakes made all around the world. I think a lot of people trying very hard to do their best, but facing something that was an unknown. Uh, and therefore, of course, no responses were perfect. But I think we we learned about a lot about how to institute public health measures and quickly. I think we need to think about the effectiveness of lockdowns. Um, my own view is that if you're going to use lockdowns, once you decide you need one, you probably should have done it two weeks ago. And uh, because the whole point of them is to stop spread of the virus rather than wait till it's spread and then try and shut it down. And I think you know there were lessons to be learned in the UK about that where some of those decisions were delayed. 
Um, a lot of a lot of what we need to learn is well outside my area of expertise. It's political, and I suppose there's two big issues: is how do we scale things like procurement efficiently uh, and fairly? And I think there are lessons in the UK learned about PPE procurement, which there are questions about how well that was done versus vaccine procurement, which was was more of a success. So discussions about how to make government adaptable in that context. I, I think uh, are very important. And the other thing that the pandemic exposed, which I think is important, is how scientific facts are communicated to politicians and acted upon and where the public interest fits in all of that. And we had some extreme examples around the world where that worked very badly. Uh, and we had other examples of where it, where it worked well. And so how do you rationally funnel scientific knowledge? And you know, this is not established knowledge. This is knowledge that's changing every day as we learn about a new pandemic. How do we, how do politicians react to that and how is that bridge uh, made efficient it's something I, I think we certainly can improve on for next time mm. and i know you say that that's sort of beyond your um, area of expertise because you you know first and foremost you're a scientist but you are right that um you know in in a crisis like this um the science was being overshadowed by the politics in many ways and do you think then that um public health um you know people need to be um you know have the doors open to them and they need to be sitting at the table with the politicians as well Yes, and I, I think that they do. I think the scientists need to be sitting down with politicians. In a perfect world, politicians would be able to assess scientific arguments more effectively than they do. Certainly in the UK, most science, most politicians have a humanities background and see science as some strange netherworld. And so I think it's quite hard to communicate rapidly and efficiently with people who don't really get the concepts. And, and I wonder if... Uh, there's a job to be done in making our politicians more diverse and more educated in this area. But that's uh, perhaps controversial and certainly beyond my uh, my area of influence. Um, what's within your area, um, you know, CITIT's work, um, what are you looking at beyond COVID-19? So we've got a, a number of serious virologists and immunologists who will keep working on SARS-CoV-2 and uh, have already done a lot of work on immune responsiveness to new strains and strategies for, for approaching the virus directly. But beyond that, uh, we've got a strong program in antimicrobial resistance, which I think is going to become more important. And we're beginning to explore other impacts that climate change is going to have on both immunity and infection, which I think is something that's going to become profoundly important over the next 10 to 20 years. Um, and so with with partners, we're engaging in, in work on that. So we're continuing our pandemic related work, but making sure that we um, extend a bit beyond that. And of course, we still work very much on, on autoimmune and inflammatory diseases, which are still becoming more common in many parts of the world and represent a, a major burden. So uh, we've decided that that sort of breadth uh, gives us uh, strength through through synergy that if we became you know, if we became just a virus institute we wouldn't have and I think the ability of the whole institute to pull together in response to the pandemic has underlined the fact that that can work uh, quite efficiently bringing in people with a whole range of expertise that had been focused on different things and getting them to work together was, was a, a productive experience. 
and I and I see a lot of intersectionality. Right? The the fact that you're looking at climate change effects, you're looking at uh, human behaviors uh, in terms of uh, micro antimicrobial resistance. Um, you know, the trends there. Uh, I just wanted to ask. You know, does your work in immune mediated diseases? Um, Help us understand the effects of long COVID any better. Uh, is that something that you might be looking into? We we have um, we set up a with with the um, the national bioresource, but we set up a, a big immunological study, which we're now looking at our data out beyond a year, and comparing patients who still have symptoms at a year, uh, and looking at what it is over the course of their disease that correlates best with the persistence of those symptoms. And, and we find interestingly that um, essentially early disease severity does correlate with the likelihood of having these persisting symptoms. Um, but specifically, so do changes in how red cells are managed and how iron is managed in the body. And we're just sort of working through that. That's quite an interesting and unexpected finding was that one of the strongest correlates with long COVID is what's going on around uh, red cell and iron metabolism a, a month or so after you, you first get disease. Um, so we, we're certainly digging into to those aspects of long COVID. I think one of the challenges there and one of the interesting things that have come out of this is that a lot of what we're finding about SARS-CoV-2 infection and COVID-19 is very likely not to be specific to SARS-CoV-2. Uh, we've studied this infection in far more detail than we've ever studied any other infection, at least in recent times. Uh, and so a lot of the factors that drive long COVID, for example, will also drive symptom persistence after other severe infections. They won't be specific necessarily to, to SARS-CoV-2. Um, and so, and that's useful, I think, because if there's a, a, a severe influenza pandemic, for example, or some other organism, a lot of what we've learned about this virus, I think, will be directly transmissible to the next one. Mm. So definitely a lot of work in store for you, and we will be hoping to catch up with you again um, to find out what lies ahead. Hopefully not, not after the next pandemic. <laughs> not in our <laughs> lifetime, I hope. <laughs> um, but uh, the university will be in a good place, um, you know, after the centuries of, of having dealt with it. Thank you so much. I've been speaking to Professor Ken Smith, head of the Department of Medicine at University of Cambridge and from the Cambridge U Institute for Therapeutic Immunology and Infectious Disease, or CITID. You've been listening to Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.